Good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're at, and good night. <laughs> if you're on the East Coast, it's nine. It's 9.30 p.m. If you're on the West Coast, you're looking at 6.30 p.m. If you're midway through, you're looking at 8.30 p.m. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so because it's Sunday reading day, and uh, it's, all, it's all Hallows Eve Eve. Kind of a mouthful, isn't it? Tomorrow's Halloween. And all the trick-or-treaters will be out. I know I'm working on getting my yard set up and decorated. Uh, always wait till the same day to decorate because thieves, you know, I don't like people taking my stuff. So I have to do it on that um, on the on the day of. So that means I'm up at 7 a.m. tomorrow doing my thing out front. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host again. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state. Which means we can get if you have if you think you have a paranormal issue going on, we can get to you and help you right away. Okay, uh, you can find us at on Facebook, California Haunts Ghostly Events, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, California There's two California Haunts uh, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team sites. There's also a Sacramento Sears site where our psychic team is located, and you can also find us on TikTok, Instagram. Instagram is go is uh, Ghosty Gal. TikTok is California Haunts, all lowercase. And you can find us on Twitter at Cal Haunts. We're Cal Haunts on Twitter. And uh, tonight, because it's Sunday, we're reading. And right now, because of Halloween, we're reading from a from a paranormal book. We do that anyway, but I mean, we're reading from a paranormal book, you know. And it's all about the Salem witch, witch trials over, you know, that happened. So we're going to be reading that. But at some point in the next month, which is coming up really fast, we're going to be shifting. Our guest uh, Wednesday night, Sylvia Schultz, also writes books, and she has written a book about dark Christmas tales. So that's what we're going to start reading. There's like 140 dark Christmas tales in this one book. So we're going to start reading through those through Christmas and into New Year's. And what we'll do is we'll probably, depending where we are in this book, we'll take a break out of this book and then shift over to the dark holiday stuff. Okay? But anyway, I got to go to the movies today, saw Black Adam, which was a really good movie. Got an ice cream afterwards. Got some more Halloween candy. That's <laughs> just what I need. And some stuff to add to decorating out front. So I was real happy about that. So tonight after I do the show, I got some uh, show work to do. And then I'll be designing mummified hands and stuff for the front yard. That's what my, my night will consist of. Besides feeding my animals, of course. Give people some time to come in the room. Because after all, it is Sunday. You know, people aren't used to, you know, they're cook, used to us being here, they're cooking dinner, they're doing whatever, but that's what these Sundays are about. You can even t- turn us on and you're, put us, put us on, I'm sure. put us on in your kitchen and, and you can listen in as, uh, as I read and you cook or do whatever you do in your kitchen. I'm just looking at the, I forgot to put my tablet on the charger, so I'm giving it a couple, excuse me a second, there we go, I'm giving it a couple extra minutes to charge up here. And uh, just an FYI, um, it might go really fast, so we may not make it for the hour. I thought again, we might. Who knows? Even on the charger, it'll go down. So, and that's because I've got an old tablet. I don't have a newer tablet. But it's great to be here. I'm glad I'm here. I love coming here Sundays. And like I said... Where Sundays are, I'm going to bring this thing up so I can drink it in between. There we go. I usually don't like to drink on the air, but we're informal here Sundays, so okay. And just remember, tomorrow's show uh, is a pre-recorded show. It'll be over on YouTube. It's Jason, Jason Gleaves is going to be talking about UFOs. 
and alien abductions and that kind of thing. So he's going to be on tomorrow, but it will be a pre-recorded show because I'll be too busy with Halloween. It's always my night off, you know, every year. Uh, great movie today. If you guys haven't seen Black uh, Black Adam yet, go see it. It's a good, 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 good movie. Anyway, I hope you all you all had a great weekend. I hope you're going to have a great Halloween. Don't eat too much of that candy. I know. Don't you guys find yourself going to the store and you know buying candy and you buy the stuff that you like, right? You buy you just in case because sometimes you know there's many kids, so then you're going to have candy stocked up that you enjoy eating, you know. And then you buy other stuff for the kids. So that's, that's pretty much what we did. Even though the stuff we're the stuff we're giving out is really good stuff. Except that the really, really, really good stuff is what we're, we're munching on all night. That's what we're doing. But anyhow, uh, yeah, we're, you know, the holidays are, are right there. Tomorrow night at midnight. Boom. Off we go to the holidays. That was fast. Very fast. Seems like last year I was just, I don't know, I was just, I was, I was in here. We were. We were working on, we were starting to work, finish off our first book. And I think, you know what? I think that book was Sylvia Schultz. Was, 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 no, I'm sorry. I take that back. Was it Rebecca Pittman, Pittman book? I think. If not, it was Nana Marine. Or maybe we weren't doing that yet. I know we started, I don't think we were doing this last year at this time. We, we had started with the Ghost of Flight 401 after Christmas, I think, is when we started that. Because I remember we did uh, Mrs. Mrs. Miracle during, during Christmas holiday. And I read the night before Christmas. So I think that's where it all started. And then since then, we've been reading a book every week for people. Okay, it's 6.35, so I'm going to get started. And like I said, I forgot the, in my infinite wisdom, I forgot to charge my, my tablet up. So um, I have it on the charger as I'm reading, but that doesn't mean anything because, like I said, it's an old tablet. So no matter how many pages I turn or anything like that, it's going to run out of juice. And hopefully we can make it for an hour with it. I'm hoping. I'm hoping. But uh, we did read on, uh, what, was, what was it, Thursday night? Thursday night we did read because our guest call, called me and let me know they had COVID, so they're rescheduling. So we ended up reading Thursday night. So this is really day three of this book. And um, Rebecca Pittman, and this book is available on Amazon if you guys want to get it for yourself. Rebecca Pittman goes into real, real tight detail to set these things up. And this is what she's done the first, or I think we're in chapter six now. These first six chapters have been a setup. We, we met Sarah Good. You know, we, we've met some of the witches that were involved in the trials. And we've met some of the, the other people that were involved in these trials. You know, we got their background as well. And she tends to go into a lot of detail. So that's that's her setting all this up. So I believe we're in chapter six. Might be chapter seven. I think it's chapter six where we left off. And that's where we're starting tonight. We we, we met Sarah Good. We, you know, we, we Like I said before, we, we've kind of met all the witches, you know, the, the famous witches. We've, we've met them already and their families and the, and then the outlying families that, that started all this mess with, with the witch trials. So uh, that's where we're at. So let's get on with this. And uh, if you like what you're hearing during the show and you haven't done so yet, please, and you're watching from YouTube, please subscribe. Uh, we're looking for subscribers. It'd be great if you could subscribe. Also on Facebook, I'm always looking for followers. So if you like what you hear, please be free. Be sure to you know hit that follow button and the like button. Also goes for Instagram. If you want to go visit me over there, I have a lot. I have a lot of stuff over there. Some of it's personal, so some of it's uh, ghost related. Uh, that's ghosty, y'all. Like I said, it's all lowercase. And if you ever happen to be on TikTok, you have a TikTok account. Join us over there too, because 
I do different things. It's not all about the show over there. It's all kinds of different things. So I think, I, I, I think you'll like my TikTok. All right, so let me get on with this. I want to open up my tablet. I want Santa to bring me a new tablet. That's what I want. An iBook would be good. Like a 10 to 12 inch iBook would make me happy. But my Samsung Note 8.0 is, is old. I can't even upgrade the thing. You know, to get the next one. What is the next round of ice cream on there or whatever they call it? It's always ice cream or something like that. Maybe it's powdered donuts now. I don't know. I see Pamela's in the room. Maurice is in the room. Uh, yeah, we got like three. Okay, so here we go. 60, over oh, 69%. That was fast. Okay, we're going to keep it juiced. So usually I don't have a cord in this thing when I'm reading. So you might get to see my hair stand on it. That'd be kind of cool. Be a shocking, be a shocking book. But this tablet's gone through a lot. It was sitting on top of my car one time, and I, because we were on a ghost hunt, and I um, pulled away without realizing it, and the tablet went flying off. And this tablet's gone through hell and back. Okay, we are at chapter seven, and here we go. Let me take a quick sip of water, and away we go. This show and Friday show is my shows I can drink water on camera. Otherwise, I don't like doing it. I think it's impolite to the guests. Chapter 7. Why do you hurt these children? March 1st, 1692. Hang on a second. Let me move this over here. Don't you, like, you get your wristwatch you want in a certain position, right? Okay. March 1st, 1692. Dawn on a village that must have been shaken to its core. This was no longer idle gossip after Sabbath meetings or snickering from those delighted with Reverend Paris's misfortunes. They were, there were three among them who had been singled out as witches in a community that believed wholeheartedly that not only were the devil and his minions real, it had been proven when thousands of witches were executed in England, a homeland they had vacated not that long ago. Some of these Puritans may have witnessed the human sacrifice themselves. The two magistrates chosen by the General Court of Boston to handle the Inquisition into possible witchcraft dealings were John Hawthorne and Jonathan Corwin. Neither man was schooled in the, in the predicts of law, nor was any other person at that time in Massachusetts. Graduates of Harvard at that time could claim a diploma in medicine or the ministry. Those were the only two disciplines offered. For a witchcraft trial, the two men turned to their first source, the Holy Bible. Yet here, the instructions on how to detect a witch, let alone to question one, were absent. Only one sentence was offered, and it was a strong one. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. They turned next to the other writings of the subject, including the Reverend Cotton Mather's memorable providences. Just checking time. Okay. It is important to note that the men overseeing the initial questioning and later the trials themselves were flying by the seat of their pants in the legal arena. In their minds, witches were not presumed innocent until proven guilty. If they had been cried out upon, especially by innocent babes, then there must be merit in the accusations. There is no smoke without fire, may have been an unspoken mantra. The three accused were walking into a situation they could not hope to win. The magistrates prepared for the Inquisition. They agreed on the terms by which an accused person could be found guilty as a witch. 1. The finding of a devil's teeth or mark. 
parentheses and unusual growth of protuberance on the accused body, proving they suckled their, fa their familiars, such as small birds, reptiles, etc. Two, an outbreak of misfortune or mischief followed or following a disagreement with a neighbor. Parentheses, and then double, and then quotes, a neighbor. Had a broader meaning than one who lived nearby. Three, the devil could not assume the shape of an innocent person in doing mischief to mankind. Offered more than just a guideline for the court. It helped put the blame on the prince of air and darkness if a guilty verdict was proffered, if only for mischief. Parentheses, the italics are those of the author. Okay. Three, the touch to four, the touch test. As mentioned earlier, it was believed if a witch touched a person they had afflicted, the victim would be cured upon the touch of the witch attacking them. Over and over in the upcoming witch trials, the touch test was used with much effect. The shrieking, tormented girls were quiet upon being touched by the accused. But six, I've lost all numbers now. Spectral evidence was also taken into consideration. A practice that Cotton Mather later voicefully denounced. Basically, it said the witch did not have to afflict the victim in person. It could send its ghost or spirit to do its bidding. While well, it mimicked the second proof listed here, there were two forms of taking on a shape. The devil assuming the shape of someone and that of a witch's shape, spirit or ghost, appearing to and even afflicting a person. Many accused witches were in jail when their shapes were said to be flying about Salem and attacking myriad victims. It is interesting to note that a test used in Europe and even within Connecticut was not one put forth for Salem's trials. Increase Mather had decided swimming the witch was inhumane and not without misconceptions. The test went this way. A suspected witch had one finger tied to her opposite toe, thereby binding her, and lowered by rope into a body of water. Some tests show the victim tied to a chair and then lowered by a rope or pole into the water. If the accused sank, she was innocent. If she floated, she was a witch. This was due to the belief that once she signed a pact with the devil, she was refuting her Christian baptism, and therefore any water would refuse to accept her. The problem with this test is that the innocent victim often drowned before she could be pulled back out. It was a damned if you are and damned if you aren't proposition. As magistrates Hawthorne and Corwin rode into the Salem village, they may well have been surprised at the fanfare that greeted them. The villagers had practically proclaimed a, ho pro proclaimed a holiday from work and domestic duties to be in attendance for the preliminary questioning of three suspected wishes. People thronged the street and heralded their approach. Nathaniel Ingersoll was, no doubt, already figuring the influx of cash that would fill his coffers as the crowds filled his tavern. He had created an ad hoc courtroom by setting a long table with chairs at the far end of the largest room where the two magistrates and their scribe, Ezekiel Cheever, would sit. Young Joseph Putnam, the prodigal brother, would also take notes. The three prisoners, Tuba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne, were already at Ingersoll's awaiting the arrival of Hawthorne and Corin. They had spent the night at Ipswich jail and been brought in by horseback early that morning. All but Tatuba, who walked a short distance from the personage to the tavern, from the parsonage to the tavern. Sarah Good had put up a fight at the jail, and on the way to the tavern that morning had jumped from the horse she was riding tandem with Constable Samuel Braybrook. He had to chase her down more than once and probably figured he wasn't getting paid enough to deal with this scurrilous female. 
Sarah Osborne had been bedridden and flung into jail the night before. She was there now at Ingersoll's, feeble yet defiant. She yelled out that she was more likely to be a victim of witchcraft than to be a witch. It felt a good, it felt a good wife Hannah Ingersoll to check the three women for witches' teeth, an odious detail added to her home acting as trial central for the moment. Every inch of an accused witch was to be searched and a pin stuck into any suspicious outgrowth found. If it bled, it was normal. If it didn't, it was suspicious. It was during this time that William Good, Sarah Good's husband, stopped by and told Hannah Ingersoll to look for a mark he noticed beneath his wife's right shoulder that he said he had not seen there before. So much for the merit of Vaughn. The stage was set. As a crisp March wind whipped Whip frocks and cape, whip frocks and capes into a frenzy, and set doors and windows to chattering. A morbid excitement filled the streets. Here was something to break up the unrelenting boredom of the daily life of Salem Village, and perhaps a chance to rid the good people, some of those denizens they would just as soon live without. As Hawthorne and Corwin rode up to Ingersoll's ordinary, they knew at once the tavern could not hold the throng of the people. Who had come not only from the village but from the nearby towns of Beverly, Topsfield, Ipswich, and Salem Town. The general court believed that the general populace was entitled to watch the proceedings, and it has always been the Puritan way to offer up the evildoers to public ridicule and humiliation. Therefore, Ingersoll was told to grab the table and chairs and lug them down to the down the street to the meeting house. His financial hopes may have been dashed, but they needn't be. The tabs for ale, food, boarding, and sundry services for the out-of-town men and horses, as the Inquisition and subsequent trial continued for over a year, kept his ca cash box full. He was the closest game in town for the entire witchcraft show, being only several yards from the Salem Village Meeting House. People flowed to his door during each break in the proceedings, and the ale flowed. The Meeting House was hurriedly arranged into a courtroom. The long table and chairs were placed beneath the pulpit, and a bar created by reversing a tall chair or adding a platform. The four afflicted girls, Abigail Williams, Betty Paris, Elizabeth Hubbard, and Ann Putnam Jr., were, for the first time ever, given the prime seats on, on the front row of pews. They were the star witnesses. Each reported having seizures that morning and appeared distraught and anxious. The rest of the large room was packed with to the rafters with eager onlookers, the wind howling around the eaves outside like like a warning banshee. Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tituba were brought into the meeting house. All eyes were upon them. Were these really witches? Did little Betty Paris look upon her beloved Tituba with pity and guilt? The prayer was said, and the room called to order. Sarah Good would go first. Tituba and Sarah Osborne were taken back to Ingersoll's, or the, witch or the watch house, which was directly across the street from, Inger from Ingersoll's, until it was their turn. The following is a written account of Sarah Good's interrogation by John Hawthorne, the magistrate from Salem Town. Ezekiel Cheever is transcribing. The spelling has been preserved. So when you hear the letters G, that would be Sarah Good. When you hear the letter H, that's Hawthorne. The examination of Sarah Good before worshipful assistants, John Hawthorne and Jonathan Curran, Corwin. H. Sarah Good, what evil spirit have you familiarity with? S.G. None. H. Have you made no contract with the devil? G. Good answer, no. H. Why do you hurt these, pe these children? G. I do not hurt them. I scorn it. 
H. Who do you employ? Then do, then do it. G. I employ nobody. H. What creature do you employ then? G. No creature, but I am falsely accused. H. Why do you go away muttering from Mr. Paris, his house? G. I did not mutter, but I thanked him for what he gave my child. H. Have you made no contract with the devil? G. No. H. Desired the children, all of them, to look upon her? And H. What, cre what creature do you employ then? G. No creatures, but I am falsely accused. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> The page flipped. H. Desired the, the, <laughs> desired the children, all of them, to look upon her? And see if this is sort of the person that had hurt them? And so they all did look upon her and said this was one of the pe persons that did torment them. Presently they were all tormented. H. Sarah Good, do you not see... I'm sorry. Do, do you not see now what you have done and, and why you do not tell us the truth? Why do you thus torment these poor children? Sarah, or this is good. I do not torment them. H. Who do you employ then? G. I employ nobody. I scorn it. H. How come they, how come they thus tormented? G. What do I know you bring others here and now you charge me with it? H. Why? Who was it? Gee, I don't, I do not know, but it was some you brought into the meeting house with you. H, we brought you into the meeting house. Gee, but you brought in two more. H, who was it then that tormented the children? Gee, it was Osborne. H, what is it that you say when, when you go muttering away from a person's houses? Gee, if I must tell you, I will tell. H, do tell us then. Gee, if I must tell, I will tell. It is the commandments. I may say, my, my commandments, I hope. H, what commandment is it? G, if I must tell you, I will tell. It is a psalm. H, what psalm? G, after a long time, she muttered over some part of a psalm. H, who do you serve? G, I serve God. H, what God do you serve? G, the God that made heaven and earth. Though she, though she was not willing to mention the word God, her answers were in a very wicked, spiteful manner, reflecting and retorting against the authority with base and abuse of words and many lies, she was taken in. It was here said that her husband had said that he was afraid that she either was a witch or would be one very quickly. The worst Mr. Hawthorne asked, asked him his reason why he said so, of her, of her whether he had ever seen anything by her. He answered no, not in this nature. But it was her bad carriage to him, and indeed said, he, he I may say with tears, that she is an enemy to all good. Essex County Court Archives, Salem Witchcraft, Volume 1, Number 11. Ha! <sighs> Ezekiel Cleaver's handwritten disposition. Yeah, so this is a handwritten disposition, just to let you guys know. I'm struggling struggling a little bit, but this is this is like 1800s writing, okay? So just, just hang with me. It is obvious that the presumption of guilt was there from the beginning, a premise that tainted the witch trials from this time forward. The very early questions are to ask her about her allegiance to the devil and why do you torment these children? She finally points out that two others were brought in with her, Tatuba and Osborne. It must have been one of them. Interestingly, she chooses Osborne over Tatuba to accuse. Perhaps Osborne has turned her away in, in the past or done her some wrong. Perhaps it is because Osborne still has a nice house and has not been brought low as she, Sarah Good, has. The afflicted girls had, had tried out their rules that would pervade each questioning. They screamed out, wreathed on, wreathed on the floor, and went into fits when good looked at them. The astonishment of the congregation must have been formidable. 
And unfortunately, the girls were now well aware that their theatrics were not only allowed, but condoned. The game was on. Sarah Good was returned to Ingersoll's, and Sarah Osborne was brought in. The questioning began along the same lines. Here we go. Sarah Osborne, her examination. H. What evil spirit have you familiar, are you familiar with? O. None. H. Have you made no contract with the devil? O. No, I never saw the devil in my life. H. Why do you hurt these children? O. I do not hurt them. H. Who do you employ then to hurt them? The, o. I employ nobody. H. What familiarity have you with Sarah Good? O. None, I have not seen her these two days. H. Where did you see her then? O. One day I'm going to town. H. What communications had you with her? O. I had none. Only how, only how do or do or so. I did, I did not know her, her by name. H. What did you call her then? Osborne. What did you call her then? Osborne made a stand at that. At last said, she called her Sarah. H. Sarah, good. Say, saith that it was you that hurt the children. O. I do not know that the devil goes about in my likeness to do any hurt. Mr. Hawthorne desired all the children to stand up and look upon her and see if they did know her wit for which they all did, and every one of them said that this was one of the women that did afflict them, and that they had constantly seen her in the very habit that she was now in. Their evidence do stand out that she said this morning that she was more like to be bewitched than that she was a witch. Mr. Hawthorne asked her what made her say so she answered that she was frightened one time in her sleep, and either saw or dreamed that she saw a thing like an Indian all black which did pinch her in her neck, and pulled her by the back part of her head to the door of the house. H. Did you ever see anything else? Oh, no. It was said by some in the meeting house that she had said that she would never be tied to that spirit anymore. H. What lying spirit is this hath the devil ever deceived you and false to you? Oh, I do not know the devil. I never did see him. H. What lying spirit was it then? Oh, it was a voice that I thought I heard. H. What did it propound to you? O. That I should go no more to meeting. Okay, that I should go no more to meeting, but I said I would and did go the next Sabbath day. H. Were you never tempted further? O. No. H. Why did, why did you yield thus far to the devil as never to go to meetings since? Zero. I, I mean, oh, <laughs> so I'm losing it. Alas. I have been psych and I have been sick. Okay, I've been sick and not able to go. Her husband and others said that she had not been at meeting this this year in two months. That's from the again from the Essex County Court Archives. Bear with me because this is an old English writing. Even the spelling is different. So do do is spelled D O E. Sick, yeah, and sick was S I was S I K E. So this is what I'm dealing with. Osborne tries to prove that she had not that she had been visited and tested by the devil as a victim, not as an accomplice. Stating she returned to church despite being ordered not to, she hoped would gain her favor. Church attendance was all important in this small Puritan community, as witnessed by John Putnam and John Porter's earlier roles as the Sabbath day name takers of those who were not in the pews. One of Osborne's statements would come back to haunt her and others. Her mention of seeing a thing like an Indian all black was too close to home for Tatuba and her husband, John Indian. With Indians still attacking and slaughtering villages along the east coastline, it was, it was a double whammy to be both black and nicknamed Indian. 
As we will see, Tatuba finds a way to craftily handle the situation. While John Indian's defense is to join the afflicted before he is too he too is accused of witchcraft. The court recessed for the new meal. Sarah Osborne was returned to her room at, at Ingersoll's, while the magistrates, constables, and the marshal ordered up ale and food from the happy Ingersoll. Sarah Osborne was ill and may have been grateful her interrogation was not a lengthy one. Tatuba would not fare as well. Chapter eight The Devil's Book. Great clouds hugged the bare branches that rattled in the wind like checking bones as Salem Village hurried back to the meeting house for what was to be the highlight of the day. The questioning of Tatuba Indian, the woman whom many believed was the start of it all. Hadn't the girls told of the slaves conjuring in the parsonage kitchen? A sacrilege at any location, but that it happened beneath the eaves of the village's religious leader made it even more damnable. Hadn't Tatuba invited the devil into the home by making a witch's cake? Hadn't the innocent young Paris daughter, Betty, cried out her name when asked who afflicts thee? The villagers, dressed in their Sunday finest, jostled for a pew seat. Many were forced to stand, pressed in like sardines, an air of excitement and nervousness pervading the cold room. Even old Giles Corey had come from his farm to watch the proceedings, despite his wife Martha's, Martha's angry, at, angry, angry, <laughs> angry admonishment. Ad admonishment, sorry. She had even ripped his saddle from his horse in an effort to make him stay at home. Citing the Inquisitions as madness. The afflicted girl sat once again at the front of the room, looking quite, looking quite agitated and pale. This accused witch was different. Tatuba had lived with Abigail and Betty, nursed them, cared for them, and tried to help ferret out the cause of their pain. But more than that, Tatuba came with the real threat of revealing their own sins to the congregation. They had conjured with the Venus glass along with her. Reverend Paris must have felt the weight of nervous dread as he watched the door for the arrival of Tatuba. He had attacked her for her violation of his house rules against dabbling in magic and had erupted over the knowledge of the witch cake's creation. He accused her of inviting the devil into his home and making the girl's torments more grievous. In a fearful rage, he hounded her with the accusations and questions, finally thrashing her when she would not give him the answers he wanted. She repeatedly cried out that she was not a witch, which only brought more beatings and wrath. For Reverend Paris, it became immediate. Sorry, I'm going too fast. For Reverend Paris, it became imminently important that the blame be removed from his doorstep, namely himself and his daughter, Betty, and niece Abigail. Therefore, Tatuba had to confess to being a witch. It was the only way he could begin to weep back together his tattered image and save his household from ruin. It was this frightened Tatuba that was finally escorted into the frigid meeting house by Constable John Herrick. At first, there was a gasp of anticipation and fear, but as she was brought before the magistrates, the four girls suddenly fell into fits and wailings that shocked the crowd. This was the most frightening display yet. Abigail and Ann Putnam Jr. shrieked and cried that they were being pinched and tortured. It was several minutes before order could be restored and the questioning began. One has to wonder if Tatuba looked at Betty with shock and gut-riching sadness. What more betrayal could the young girl offer to be found guilty of witchcraft was hanging? For the girls, they feared what Tatuba might reveal about their secret conjuring and perhaps their fakery. As a preventative measure, to make sure the magistrates saw how badly she was afflicting them, 
Their screams and contortions were amplified far above the an an antics portrayed during Sarah Good's and Sarah Osborne's questioning. The atmosphere in a place set aside for worship became one of chaos and fear. John Hawthorne finally regained control of the crowd. The girls rose from the floor where they had been writhing, dusted off the where they had been writhing, dusted off their white aprons, and returned apprehensively to their seats. The villagers tried to steady their racing hearts and turn their eyes to the cowering black woman who stood before the magistrate's table. Once again, John Hawthorne conducted the questioning in his usual abrasive manner. Jonathan Corwin appeared happy to let him do so. Ezekiel Cheever sat ready to transcribe the ongoings. As Tatuba's trial lasted three days, the notes were copious indeed. Here we go. H. Tatibi. What? Misspelling. Tatibi, what evil spirit have you familiarity with? T. None. H. Why do you hurt these children? T. I do not hurt them. H. Who is it then? T. The devil. For aught I, I, I can know. H. Did you ever see the devil? T. The devil came to me and bid me serve him. H. Who have you seen? T. Four women, and sometimes, okay, four women, and sometimes hurt the children. H. Who were they? T. Good Osborne and Sarah Good. And I do not know who the other who the other were. Sarah Good and Osborne would have would have me hurt the children, but I would not. She further saith there was a tale, or rather, it's a tall in parentheses, man of Boston. What what she did see? H. When did you see them? T. Last night at Boston. H. What did they say to you? Okay. What? Let's see. What did they say to you? They said hurt the children. H. And did you hurt them? T. No. There was four women and one man. They hurt the children, and then lay all upon here. And they tell me if I will not hurt the children, they will hurt me. H. But did you not hurt them? T. Yes, but I will hurt them no more. H. Are you not sorry you did hurt them? T. Yes. H. And why then do you hurt them? T. They say hurt children or we will do, do worse to you. H. What have you seen a man come to me and, and, and say serve me? H. What service? T. Hurt the children and last night there was an appearance that said kill the children. And if I would, if I would no go on hurting the children, they would do worse to me. H. What is this appearance you see? T. Sometimes it's like a hog, and sometimes like a great dog, this appearance. She says she did not see four times, or did see four times. H. <laughs> what did I say to you? T. It's the black dog. Said, serve me. But I said, I am afraid. He said, if I did not, he would do worse to me. H. What did you say to it? T. I will serve you no longer. Then he said he would hurt me, and then he looks like a man and threatens to hurt me. She said that this man had a yellow I got she said that this man had a yellow bird that kept with him, and he told me he had more pretty things that he would give me if I would serve him. H. What were those pretty things? T. He did not show me then. H. What else have you seen? T. Two cats, a red cat and a black cat. H. What did they say to you? T. They said serve me. H. When did you see them last? T. Last night, and they said, serve me, but she said, I would not. H. What service? T. 
She said, hurt the children. H. Did you not pinch Elizabeth Hubbard this morning? T. The man brought her to me and made her. Made me pinch her. H. Why did you go to Thomas Putnam's last night and hurt his, chi and hurt his child? T. They pull me and haul me and make me go. H. And what would have... What, what would have you do? Kill her with a knife? Left, Fuller, and others said at this time, when the child saw these persons and was tormented by them, that she did not complain of a knife, that they would have her cut her head off with a knife. H. How did you go? T. We ride upon sticks and, and are there presently. H. Do you go through the trees or over them? T. We see no, th we see, we, we see no thing but... Are there presently? H. Why did you not tell your master? T. I was afraid they said they would cut off my head if I told. H. Would not you have hurt others if you could? If you cold could? T. They said they, they would hurt others, but they could not. H. What what it what attendant has Sarah Good? T. A yellow bird, and she would have given me one. H. What meat did she give it? T. It did suck her between her fingers. H. Did you not hurt Mr. Corwin's, Corwin's child? T. Good, good, and good. Osborne told that they did hurt Mr. Corwin's child and would have hurt and would, and would have me hurt him too, but I did not. H. What has Sarah Osborne? T. Yesterday she had a thing with, with a head like a woman with two legs and wings. Abigail Williams that lives with her uncle, Mr. Paris, said that she did see the same creature. Parentheses. With good, Osborne, and it turned into the shape of good, Osborne, and yesterday being, and it turned into the shape of good, Osborne. What else, H, what else have you seen with, with she, Osborne? T. And another thing, Harry, it goes upright like a man. It hath only two legs. H. Did you not see Sarah good upon Elizabeth Hubbard last Saturday? T. I did see her set a wolf upon her to afflict her. The persons with this maid did say that she did complain of a wolf. T. She further said that she saw a cat with, with good at another time. H. What clothes doth the man? We go in. T. He goes in black clothes, a tall man with white hair, I think. H. How doth the woman go? T. In a white, in a white hood, say hood, and a, and a black hood. With a top knot. H. Do you see who it is that torments these children now? T. Yes, it is good. Good. She hurts them in her own shape. H. And who is it that hurts them now? T. I am blind now. I cannot see. Tatuba's answers to Hawthorne's questions are remarkable. While Osborne and Good stubbornly refuse to admit they were witches or in allegiance with the devil, Sly Tatuba listens for clues from the magistrate on how she should respond. Perhaps partly due to the beating she has received at Reverend Paris's hand, and partly due to her own reasoning, she confesses, but with several caveats. One, she is sorry and will not hurt the children again. She only did so because she was afraid for her own life. Second, she is literally joining the girls as a witness against. Osborne and Good, by saying it is they who told her to hurt the children, and they go in, they go in shapes to afflict the girls, such as the wolf that followed Elizabeth Hubbard home only two days prior. She speaks of yellow birds, dogs, and hogs, all known creatures of the devil, and associated with evil in the Puritans' minds. The Bible even told the devil departing 
a possessed man entering into the bodies of wild pigs. Thirdly, Tachuba avoids answering questions requiring detail that can be confirmed or discredited. When asked if she flew above the trees or threw them on her stick, she says, basically, you don't get to see anything. You just suddenly arrive at your destination. At that, at the end of her trial, the girls once more go into fits. Tatuba is asked, who is it that hurts them now? She shuts it all down by saying, I am blind now. I cannot see. For Tatuba, a natural-born storyteller who cast her spells of magic over the drowsy heads of Abigail and Betty in the candlelight evenings at the parsonage, this was her finest hour. She would tell the young girls of exotic places, colorful birds, spices, and enchantments. But now, with the, growling, with the growing knowledge that a congregation of white people were hanging on for her every word and believing her, it must have been a heady experience. Magistrates from Salem Village rivals panting for her information, while the white male scribbled furiously to take down her every word. For the first time in her life, she had power. No longer Paris's slave, but the catalyst that could turn this village on its ear. And, hopefully, pardon herself from the accusation with which she was branded. All right, second examination of Tatuba as recorded by Magistrate John Corwin. Corwin, everyone knows, uses a simple Q&A te technique to indicate the questions and answers. March 2nd, 1692. <laughs> it's this old, the, the, this old language, I'm telling you. Okay. Q, question. What covenant did you make with that, with that man that came to you? What did he tell you? Answer. He tell me he God, and I must believe him and serve him, serve him, serve him six years, and he would give me many fine things. Question: How long ago was this? Answer: About six weeks and a little more. Friday night before Abigail was ill. Question: What did he say? You must do more. Did he say you must write anything, or did he offer any paper? Did he offer? Did he offer you any paper? Answer: Yes. The next time he come to me and showed me some fine things, something like creatures, a little bird, something like green and white. Question, did you promise him then when, when he spake to you then that? What, you answer him? A, answer. I then said this, I, to I told him I could not believe him, God. I told him I asked, I asked my master and would have gone up, but he slept, he stopped me and would not let me question what did you promise him answer the first time i believe him god and then he was glad question what did he say to you then what did he say to you that you must do this answer this he tell me they must meet together question when did he say you you may meet together answer he tell me wednesday next at my missus house and then they all meet together and that I, and that night I saw them all stand in the corner, all four of them. The man stand behind me and take hold of me to make me stand still in the hall. Question, where was your master then? Answer, in the other room. Question, time of night? Answer, a little before prayer time. Question, what did this man say to you when he took hold of you? Answer, he said, go to, <laughs> go to Ibto. The other room and see the children and do hurt them and do hurt to them and pinch them and then i went in and and would not hurt them a good while i would not hurt betty i love betty 
but they but but they haul me and make me pinch Betty and the next and the next Abigail and then quickly went away together and I pinched them question did they pinch a no but they all looked on and see me pinch them question did you go into that room in your own person and all the rest answer yes and my master did not see us for they would not let my master see question did you go with the company answer no i stayed and the man stayed with me question what did he then do to you answer he tell me my master go to prayer and he read in book and he asked me what i remember but don't you remember anything question did he ask you did he ask you no more but the first time to serve him or the second time answer yes he asked me again and that i serve him six years and he come the next time and he show me a book answer okay i think the other question ha and when would he come then answer the next friday the next fridays held me a book in the day time be times in the morning question and what book did he bring a great or little book answer he did not show it to, to me nor would not but he had it in his in his pocket question did not he make you write your name answer no not yet for my mistress called me into the other room question what did he say that you must do in that book answer he said write and set my name to it question did you write answer yes once i made a mark in the book and made it with red like blood question did he get it out of your body answer he said he must get it out of the next time he said he must get it out the next time he can he come again he gave me a pin tied in a stick to do it with but he wouldn't let me but he wouldn't let me blood with it as yet but intended another time when he came again question did you see any other marks in his book answer yes a great many some marks red some yellow he opened his book a great many marks in it question did he tell you the names on them a answer yes of two of two more good and osborne and he say that he say they they make the marks in that book and he showed them to me question how many marks do you think there was answer nine question did they write there did they write their names answer they made marks goody good good said she made her mark but goody osborne would not tell she was cross to me question when did good tell you she set her hand to the book answer the same day i came here to prison question did you see the man that morning answer yes a little in the morning and he tell me the magistrates come up to examine me examine me question what did he say you must say answer he tell me tell nothing if i did he would cut my head off question tell us true how many women do used to come when when you read abroad answer four of them these two osborne and good and those two strangers question you say that there was nine did he tell you who they were answer no he did not tell me who they were he wouldn't let me see but he tell me i should see see them the next time okay question what size did you see 
Answer, I see a man, a dog, a hog, and two cats, a black cat and a red, and the strange monster was, was Osborne's that I mentioned before. This was the hairy imp, the hairy imp. The man would give, give it to me, but I would not have it. Question, did he show you in the book which was Osborne and which was Good's mark? Answer, yes, I see their marks. Question, but did he, but did he tell the names of the other? Answer, no, sir. Question, what did he say to you when you made your mark? Answer, he said, serve me and always serve me. The man with the two women came from Boston. Question, how many times did you go to Boston? Answer, I was going and then came back again. I was never at Boston. Question, who came back with you again? Answer, the man came back with me and the women go away. I was not willing to go. Question, how far did you go to what town? Answer, I never went to any town. I, I see no trees, no town. Question, did he tell you where the nine lived? Answer, yes. Some in Boston and some here in this town. But he would not tell me who they were. Salem Selects, Massachusetts. Box, box Essex County Manuscripts. Wow, okay. It loosened up my tongue a little bit here. Okay. Reverend Paris must have felt the hand of death squeezing the life from him as Tituba confessed before the villagers and magistrates that the tall men and others had chosen the parsonage for their meeting. Things weren't bad enough for him already. Note how Tituba first puts Paris in a different room and then Hadley says he couldn't see what was going on anyway as the tall man would not let him see, see them. She is careful not to use the word devil when speaking of the man with the book of which his name signed in blood. When asked how often she flew to Boston, she quickly backtracks and basically says, I was going, but I came back. I didn't go to Boston. She also says she saw no other towns. Was this because she feared being asked for details about places she had never seen? Better to just say, I didn't go there. It is fair to say this uneducated woman was craftier than any of the accused to come before the stand. It is no wonder she was one of the few early prisoners to escape hanging. For Tatuba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne, life would never be the same. One would die shortly in jail, one would hang, and one would be sold to further her servitude. The dank jail at Salem Town became, became Tatuba's and Sarah Osborne's home, beginning that afternoon. Sarah Good was taken back to Essex County Jail at Ipswich. It's not certain if her captors were aware she was pregnant. Her layers of dirty skirts may have hidden her condition. Her daughter, Dorothy, was handed over to her father, William, who would now have to find food and shelter for the child. The inhabitants of Salem Village flooded out, out of the meeting house into the biting March cold. Excited voices wafted on the wind as they discussed the surreal court drama they had just witnessed. Were they safe now? The three witches were on their way to jail. Surely thick walls and guards would allow the village residents to sleep soundly tonight. If they thought the three witches' imprisonment would put an end to the fevered attack on Salem Village, they underestimated the force they were dealing with. William Allen and John Hughes walked home along the muddy road from the meeting they had just attended in the meeting house that convened after the witchcraft hysteria earlier that day. It was a meeting for the men of Salem to discuss more earthly matters, such as the ongoing war with Salem Town for, their, for, for separating and for separating. 
The moon struggled to throw some light on the dark silhouettes below, as the wind continued to drive sodden clouds across its face. The two men thought back to the ju ju juxtaposition of the two meetings they had attended that day, one dealing with the evil forces of the devil and witches, and the other concerning the maintenance of Salem Town's roadways. It was a strange reality, to say the least. Suddenly, Alan and Hughes paused. As a repetitive sound they could not identify echoed from the bare trees and jagged rocks. Up ahead, something sat on hulking black haunches and waited for them. As they mustered their courage and took tentative steps toward the beast, the shape suddenly broke into three women who swiftly fled, vanishing into the night. In their fevered excitement from the day's hearings, they swore the women were none other than Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tatuba Indian. At Dr. Griggs' home, neighbors had gathered to talk to Elizabeth Hubbard. They were dismayed to see that not only was the girl, girl's suffering not at an end now that her attackers were in jail, she was worse than ever. She cried out that she was being pinched and jabbed by the shape of Sarah Good. Samuel Sibley, the husband of Mary Sibley, who instructed Tatuba on making of the witch cake, was one of the neighbors in attendance and was shocked as Elizabeth cried out. There stands Sarah Good upon the table by you, with all her naked breast and barefooted and bare-legged. Oh, nasty slut. If I had something, I would kill her. Sibley grabbed his walking cane and struck at the place Elizabeth was pointing to, though he could not see anything. You have hit her right across the back, Elizabeth yelled. You have almost killed her. As for the flesh and blood body of Sarah Good, she was on the run through the bitter March night without shoes or stockings. She had escaped her captors at Constable John Herrick's farm, where she was spending the night on her way to the Ipswich jail. Leaving her shoes and stockings behind, she fled into the night. With nowhere to go and her feet stinging and cut from the rocks and frozen ground, she gave up and returned to the shelter of her captives. John Herrick and his wife noticed Sarah's arm was bloody, no doubt, from tearing through the tree branches as she fled. Yet, when word spread of Elizabeth Hubbard's attack by Sarah Good Specter that same night, and of Sibley hitting it with a cane, Good's wounds took on, more, took on a more ominous tone. The bloodied arm took the place of where Hubbard said she was struck with Sibley's cane, her back. The fact that Elizabeth had said Good Specter was standing there, barefooted and barelegged, struck an even more chilling chord, as indeed Good had left her shoes and stockings behind in her escape. Whether or not she was bare-breasted at some point that evening was not reported on. Sarah Good was far from giving up her escape attempts. As one of her guards, Samuel Braybrook, rode with Sarah behind him, pillion-style, to the Ipswich jail the next day, she slid off the horse and tried to run. The beleaguered guard grabbed her and plucked her back upon the horse. She swore at him and berated him the entire three-hour journey as they covered over ten miles, including past, including passing the home of Sarah's childhood, where she had seen happier times before her father's suicide. Here she was, strapped to a horse behind a man, carrying her to jail to await a trial where, if found guilty, she would be strung from a tree and hanged. How cruel life had been to Sarah Good. Braybrook reported that Sarah had tried to kill herself during the sojourn to the jail, but he did not say how. In Salem Jail, Sarah Osborne and Tatuba were being questioned once again by Hawthorne and Corwin. Tatuba continued to play the victim card and expanded on how the evil entities had forced her to pinch and torment Betty Paris and Abigail Williams. She elaborated on the devil's book she had been told, 
told the sign and how she was given a pen and a stick to which to draw her blood beside her name on the middle pages where nine other names were scrawled in scarlet. She told of the devil's threats to hurt her if she spoke of the book and other things she had witnessed, even decapitation. As if on cue, Tatuba screamed out that she was being hurt by Osborne in good spirits. A woman was brought in and told to search the slave for any marks to verify what she was telling them. Sure enough, they found some. Reverend Hale wrote of the incident that the, that the women found, marks of the devil's wounding of her. When Tatuba was searched for witches' teats by Goody Ingersoll at the tavern the day before, the marks had not been there. Tatuba was gaining the sympathy of the magistrates as they watched invisible demons tormenting her for her bravery in confessing. In comparison to Osborne's and good stubborn refusal to admit to any evil doing, it weighed particularly well in the tormented slave's favor. What's interesting is whether or not Tatuba had picked up some of the tricks used by the afflicted girls. Had she herself made the marks on her body in preparation for further questioning? If Osborne knew of being named again by the servant, how did it make for the two women sharing a room in a squalid jail? As for Sarah Osborne's accusation of seeing an Indian old black, Tatuba had handled that during her turn before the magistrates. She testified of a tall man in dark clothes with white hair from Boston. As Tatuba was the only one of these three witches to confess, her words carried more weight. With her cunning, she had turned Osborne's accusation of a black man into a man in old black and put him in Boston for good measure. No one ever accused John Indian, and Osborne's words on the subject were forgotten. Just in case, John Indian took up his role as one of the afflicted of Salem Village. Just after Tatuba was jailed, he began to have fits so fearful that some said he looked like a beaten creature. He chose Ingersoll's ordinary for many of his attacks, where there was always an ample crowd. As to what happened to Reverend Paris's ha household, with their only house slave in jail and their, and their other servant putting on a sideshow at the local tavern, is not commented upon. Elizabeth Paris was sickly and Abigail and Betty were still twitching and shrieking into the night. Meanwhile, the evil spirits were flying with a, with a plumb about the rooftops of Salem Village. The devil's fingers were moving the chess pieces frantically as the inhabitants of the small hamlet batted at, night, at nightmares and started, started at moving shadows. John Hughes, one of the two men who had seen the beast in the roadway the night before, was once again hunted by strange occurrences. A white dog followed him from a visit to Samuel Sibley's at 8 o'clock when the spring hours were already dark. That night, a strange cat appeared on the end of his bed. It was growing, it was glowing with an eerie light. He kicked at it, and the cat disappeared before his eyes. His friend, William Allen, who had also seen the beast the night before, was faring no better. As shadows moved about his bedchamber, one became the likeness of Sarah Good. She glowed with a strange light that illuminated Alan's bed as she sat down upon his foot. He kicked at her, and she, like the cat, of Hugh's nightmares, vanished. The spectral attacks continued throughout the village, although the four girls seemed quiet somewhat. They may have been putting a finger to the judicial wind to see which way it was blowing, or they may have realized that with Tituba actually confessing to their accusation of witchcraft, they just plunged down the rabbit hole. Ann Putnam Jr., however, was still active. She now added little five-year-old Dorcas Good, Dorothy Good, to her spectral attackers, and that of an unknown woman. When Ann refused to sign the devil's book, the specter of, 
of Dorothy was offered, was offering her. Anne claimed a little demon bit and choked her as viciously as any adult. The list of accused witches was just getting started. Chapter 9. Prison Prayers and Pranks Salem Village peered from their windows at the frigid March nights with fear. Indians presented a very real and physical danger. Safeguards could be put in place for that. Doors bolted, men in the watchtowers, guns loaded. But this... How does one prepare a defense against an unseen enemy that can pass through a locked door and window as easily as air through a crack in the wall? What does one do when innocent shapes take on neighbors' meanings? Or nefarious meanings, I'm sorry. The moonlight shining down on the shingle and thatched rooftops of the village sent shadows from the tree trunks and boulders, skeletal fingers of smoke that reached out to pull in innocent victims into the underworld. Evil was here and perhaps, with God's grace, was safely confined in Salem Jail. Sarah Good was finally transported from Ipswich Jail three days later to join the other two accused witches in Salem Jail. Hawthorne and Corwin continued to examine the three women, but only Tituba elaborated and embellished her tales of the tall man, and of Osborne and Good's revenge upon her for confessing. Tituba, on a roll now, told the magistrates that the death of Diodat Lawson's wife and child all those years ago, had been the result of witchcraft. How much more was there to know? How far back had Salem Village been in the clutches of the devil without knowing? The web of, of familial and neighborly connections that had been spun for generations was being pulled taut. Almost without exception, the accusers were related in some way to each other or had some common bond. The devil's pawns had had a taste of power, and now they were out in full force. Elizabeth Proctor. Sunday, March 6, 1692, Ann Putnam Jr. put a name to the unknown woman who accompanied Dorcas, Dorcas was just Dorothy, guys, to her room and helped in the spectral attack. During the Sabbath services, she pointed out Elizabeth Bassett Proctor, wife of John Proctor, as one of the witches that had choked and bitten her three days earlier. Anne said she had seen Goody Proctor during the spectral attack, but did not recognize her until she saw her today sitting in one of the pews. Elizabeth Proctor may have been an easy target. It was no secret that the Proctors were not in sympathy with the girl's antics, to the point that John Proctor had punished his maid, Mary Warren, for her part in it. The Proctors lived just south of Salem Village's boundary and ran a tavern that had seen some scandal. Gossip reported that Proctor served liquor to a drunken Indian. Mary Warren reported arguments between her master and mistress that even Proctor's son, Benjamin, had confessed his father often kept unreasonable time and would drink to excess. Excuse me. The Proctors were not one of the taxpayers for Salem Village due to their location. All in all, the Puritan tongues wagged, and there was a sense of impropriety concerning the family. Elizabeth Proctor was John Proctor's third wife. She had inherited six of his children from his two prior marriages and had borne five of her own. Wow. At the time of the witchcraft outbreak, she was pregnant with her sixth. Unlike the demure, withering female portrayed in Arthur Miller's The Crucible, she was hard-headed and at times shrewish, and at times a shrewish taskmaster. She ran the tavern while John tended the farm and was away. It was said that if a customer couldn't pay, they would have to hand over something she could pawn for the sum. 
These traits were not in alignment with the Puritan mantra of a wife being submissive to her husband and the beacon of purity and gospel values for her offspring. In short, the eyes of Salem Village were upon her. Elizabeth Hubbard knew Mary Warren. In fact, she had been to the Proctors the same day Sarah Good, in the shape of a wolf, had chased her home. As mentioned earlier, Elizabeth Hubbard lived with Dr. Griggs and had made cutting remarks about Elizabeth Proctor's medical practice, medicinal practices. Had Dr. Griggs put the bug in Hubbard's ear that Elizabeth Proctor was practicing some kind of ad hoc medicine that could be aligned with black magic? Elizabeth Proctor's grandmother had been accused of witchcraft in 1669. As we will see, she would not be the last of the accused to be tied to ancestral witchcraft proceedings. No doubt, Mary Warren had confided in Hubbard about the Proctor's skepticism concerning the girl's afflictions. John had even made the cutting statement, she must have her fits forsooth, when Mary was ordered against his protests to testify in court. To him, the girls were faking it, and he had no time for such nonsense. Samuel Sibley got an earful of Proctor's tongue lashings. He told the man that if the afflicted continued on with their fakery, we should all be devils and witches quickly. Joseph Pope overheard. Proctor said that if, that if Mr. Paris will let him have his Indian, he said the Proctor would soon drive the devil out of him. He chose the wrong people in whom to vent his anger. Those ran these rantings to men who were in the households of witnesses for some of the torment the girls were experiencing would soon spread his patrolic chastisements to those who could do him the most harm. The following day, on March 7th, Governor Phipps and Increase Mather boarded the ship that would finally bring the Long Four Charter home to Massachusetts. The sea voyage across the Atlantic would take 66 days or longer. By the time they arrived, they would find many of their fellow Puritans festering in jails, and the cry of witch echoing throughout the countryside. In fact, by the time they arrived in May, the accusations had reached a staggering amount. The three women, awaiting their fate in the cold and dank Salem jail, were suddenly rousted from their beds of hay and lead out into the March morning. If they were in hopes that they were being freed, they were sadly mistaken. They were loaded onto a cart, and the day-long ride to Boston began. There, they would be housed in a new prison, a stone edifice in the heart of the marketplace of Boston believed to be one large communal room with possibly a few smaller rooms abridging, abridging it. It was well known for its odor of feces, vomit, rotting food, and tobacco. Unlike Salem's jail, which had withered wooden walls with a stone basement, Boston's prison walls were thick stone with a bare floor covered in filthy straw. Lice was the common affliction. Visitors to the jail compared it to hell. From the moment the three women were unceremoniously thrown into the large common room, the jailer, John Arnold, began a tally of their housing fees. They were to be charged two shillings, sixpence per week. They were also charged for shackles that were clapped to their ankles in the hopes of keeping their specters from flying about and afflicting the victims. Anything else they asked for was put on the bill. Many of the witchcraft accused were reduced to penury because of the jail debts they accrued. Those who could not pay the bill when the trials finally ended over a year later would remain jailed. If family members could not bring them food, they were given a small portion of bread and water a day. Many of their possessions were confiscated and sold off in the name of paying off their debts. That many of their treasured heirlooms 
ended up in the hands of Sheriff George Corwin of Salem was a known fact. Within this dark and forsaken world of noise, odor, and disease, Sarah Good gave birth. It is not certain at what date she delivered the child. There is no record of it, only to say that it died not long after. No baby could have survived through the freezing nights and stench. With the foul food the prisoners were served, Sarah's milk was insufficient. And so it is with this early death that the girls of Salem Village claim the life of an innocent baby. There would be many more deaths to come. On March 11th, Reverend Paris once again invited Reverend John Hale from, Be from Beverly and other pastors to his home to pray over his children. Public fasts had been held earlier, and the inhabitants admonished to look within themselves for the answers of why this evil should befall the small village. As always, it was the shortcomings of the people, some slip of consciousness or deed, that must have turned God away from them. The ministers prayed over Abigail and Betty. For the most part, the two sat quietly with the exception of some twitching and muttered words. It was, well, it was well known young Betty had been in a terrible state ever since Tatuba was jailed. No doubt from guilt and fear, and fear, the little girl's fits and tortured soul were a piteous thing to behold. Elizabeth Paris appealed to her husband to let Betty be sent away to their relative Stephen Siebel's home in Salem Town until things settled down. The child's health was at stake. Betty was sent away and her name no longer appeared on court documents as one of the accusers in the witch trials. Abigail was left at the parsonage to carry on with her daily campaign of hatred. In Boston, the question remained what to do with the witches they had now imprisoned. Witchcraft was a hanging charge. Tatuba had said there were at least nine other names scribbled in the tall man's book. That meant a witch conspiracy. They were without, a, without the charter and the legal structure to move forward. Sir William Phipps was on his way to act as a newly appointed Massachusetts governor over the deposed Andros. Until he arrived with the charter, the witches would just have to wait in jail. All the magistrate could do was continue to ferret out the rest of the coven afflicting Salem Village with malicious intent. They may have prayed that Tatuba's nine names were now down to six. Elizabeth Proctor and Little Dorcas had just been accused, but had yet to be brought forward. If they were found probably guilty and jailed, that would leave only four. Only four. Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tatuba remained shackled throughout the Candlest Nights. Sarah Good had been allowed her pipe and big tobacco from any that came through the jail hallway. Perhaps no longer having to seek food and shelter, even in these hellacious conditions, was a welcome respite for Good. She may have believed it would all blow over when the magistrates came to their senses. It was now spring. Plowing and planting season. There was no more time for such silliness, but the silliness was finding a momentum that would shock the world for centuries. Martha Corey. Without a legal compass with which to steer, the magistrates turned to previous writings that dealt with prior witchcraft trials and how to conduct them. One such publication was, was Richard Bernard's Guide to Grand Jurymen. Among other guidelines laid out within the pages, he admonishes the suspected witches that afflicted, uh, the, the, the suspected witches the afflicted, and the witnesses should be questioned apart and not in the hearing of one another. The Inquisitions put forth of the three originally accused witches in Salem Village in the winter-spring of 1692 had already blown that concept out of the water. It had been a public circus with the accused, witnesses, and afflicted on full display for all to see. 
this obvious sharing of knowledge contaminated any further trial the accused could hope for. Any fair trial, I'm sorry, the accused could hope for. The girls were already comparing notes and being fed names by their elders with a grudge to bear. Elizabeth Proctor and Little Dorcas Good had been named by Ann Putnam Jr. as specters who had harmed her. Still, no warrants had been issued for them. The five people so far accused had fallen outside the walls of the church, as none of them attended on a regular basis and were not part of the covenant members. It was with it was with Ann Jr.'s next accusation that the pillars of the Puritan community would shudder and eventually find itself tied with nooses. Martha Corey was a woman somewhere around 70 years of age when she found herself as the next villager to be accused of witchcraft. This was to be a shock to the Puritans who had so far seen only the derelict of the community accused. Martha was a covenant woman of the church, yet there were those who felt her past still followed her as a shadow at Newday. At Noonday, Martha was once married to Henry Rich and the mother of his son. At some point, rumors began to spread that Martha had given birth to a mulatto son, Ben, in 1677, obviously not squired by Rich. She raised the boy away from prying eyes in a boarding house while Rich was left to raise their Caucasian son, Thomas. Henry Rich was reportedly a murderer, another nail in Martha's pious coffin. We don't know what became of him, but we do know she married Giles Corey in 1690, only two years before she joined the ranks of the accused. Corey was responsible for getting Martha into the Salem Village Church with full honors. The marriage, however, must have been a, a tumultuous one, for Giles was heard to say that what he knew about her, if it ever got out, would fix her business. On March 12, 1692, Ann Putnam Jr. added a new name to her spectral attackers. She claimed Martha Corey was coming to her at night and tormenting her. As Corey was a member of the church, Anne's uncle, Edward Putnam, and neighbor Ezekiel Cheever decided to ride over to the Corey farm and question Martha before word got out that she had been identified as a possible witch. They asked Anne before they departed to describe the clothing Martha Corey had worn when Anne was attacked by her specter. Anne conveniently told the men she could not see the invisible world Right now, as the specter of Martha Corey had warned her that her sight would not return until that evening when Corey would be back to pay her off for betraying her. It is obvious that Martha Corey is being given advantages the other accused witches were not afforded due to her name being among the church elite. The two men set off for the long ride to the Corey farm, which was just south of the Salem village boundary. In fact, of those that would be accused in the witch trials, the Proctors were the Corey's closest neighbors. Traveling past several hills and village farms, they finally arrived at the, at the Corey's home, finding Martha there alone. Martha's derision of the visit did not bode well for her. She met the two men with a sneer and announced, I know what you're coming for. You are come to talk with me about being a witch, but I am none. I cannot help people talking to talking of me. Had Martha looked over the motley crew of, three, of the three witches accused in jail so far, and seen that they fell into the unsavory category for various reasons. Sarah Osborne had been accused, and she had checkered past with multiple marriages and scandals. Was it reasonable to assume her name would come up due to her unpuritan-like past? Martha would also become one of the girl's most outspoken opponents, calling them out as faking their fits. Her question to the visiting men's accusation that Ann Putnam Jr. Had, had said Martha's ghost had attacked her the night before was one perhaps anyone with a brain would ask. 
but does she tell you what clothes I have on? Putnam and Cheever may have paused in surprise at this question, as young Anne had just dodged the very question earlier. Martha repeated it, obviously trying to get her point across to those men that the accusations were nonsense with nothing specific with which to hang a witch. When they told her Anne could not describe her clothing, as Martha's specter had blinded her vision until later tonight, Corey grinned and shrugged as if to say, there you go, how convenient. Her defiance may have perturbed the two men who were both deacons because they warned her that by being accused herself, it reflected upon the entire church of uh, uh, entire church of, uh, 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 well, excuse me, the entire church of the villagers. She seemed not to care about the others. In fact, showed no pity for the ones already jailed, calling them idle, slothful persons who minded nothing that was good. She reminded them that she was now a Christian woman who delighted in the word of God. It was obvious Martha Corey felt elevated over those other souls of Salem Village who were not gospel women. It was also obvious that she looked upon the entire affair as humorous and a waste of her time. But Martha went too far in her rejection of the girl's carrot, crying out, I do not believe there are witches, she announced haughtily. The two deacons of the church standing before her, this, to the two deacons of the church standing before her, this was blasphemy. God was real, and his nemesis, the devil, was real. To deny one was to deny the other in the Puritan mind. To denounce witches, the devil's handmaidens, was an insult to the church. Ignoring the growing anger of these two men, Martha once again reminded them that she had nothing in common with the three accused witches. I am a gospel woman, she announced again. It would become her mantra in the coming days. Woman, outward, woman, outward profession of faith cannot save you, they declared. Oh, woman, outward profession of faith cannot save you, they declared and left her house. Putnam and Cheever made the long ride north back to Thomas Putnam's house near Hawthorne's Hill to check on Anne. She had been quiet all afternoon during their absence. No doubt the report was made to the Putnams of Martha's declarations of innocence. Anne Jr. may have worried that this churchwoman was slipping through her fingers. As soon as the two deacons departed the, for their homes, she once again fell into fits and screamed that Martha Corey had indeed returned that night for her pound of flesh. Martha Corey was not out of the woods. For Mary Warren, the proctor's 20-year-old servant, claiming that the specter of Martha had appeared to her that night as well. According to Mary, she had reached out in a daze towards Corey's shimmering shape and pulled her to her lap where she was seated. But as the shape drew nearer, she saw it was John Proctor. It is nobody, Proctor cried in exasperation, but it is my own shape, you see. I see there is no heed to any of your talkings, for you are all possessed with the devil, for it is nothing but my shape. The rumors of Martha Corey's witchcraft spread to the neighboring farm of Joseph Pope. The hysteria swept over Bashua Pope, his wife, causing her to become temporarily blind. Though it was the Sabbath, the witches seemed to be zipping about Salem Village upon their sticks in a frenzy. Okay, that's it. We'll start chat. We'll read chapter 10 next week. Wow, that was crazy. Man, all those accusations. No proof behind them. Good grief. Anyway, that's where we're at. Where We will uh, continue next week. And then, uh, yeah. I hope you guys uh, enjoy this interesting book. It is very interesting. And like I said, um, Rebecca goes into a lot of detail in her book. So when she <laughs> when we got into the, the trial questions, it got 
it got dicey. It got dicey for me, but uh, I hope you understood it. I tried to make it understandable. I was trying. I was trying to understand it as I was going, because a lot of the spellings were different for different things that you know that we spell now. Anyway, tomorrow Halloween. Hope everybody has a great Halloween. Um, I will not be here again. I'll be off, but we do have a show 6:30 p.m. It's going to be on YouTube, so check out. So you can check it out. I, I put links out everywhere so you guys can see it. It is uh, Jason Leaves is going to be on the show, talking about UFOs, aliens, alien encounters, and all that good stuff. So he's going to be there. It was a very interesting interview that I did with him, and I think I think you'll you'll enjoy it and all that and that. Anyway, if you like the show, uh, please you know if you're listening on Facebook, please uh, hit that like button and hit that sh- and, and hit that join button to follow me. If you're listening on YouTube, hit that uh, little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner. Uh, I got that bright light in my face. Trying to adjust. Hit that hit that ghost. <laughs> Click on the ghost. Click on the ghost in the bottom right-hand corner. And that will subscribe you to, my, to the YouTube channel. And we have more than 450 uh, videos over there, different topics. that I think you'll find interesting. I think there's something in there for everybody. Check us out at uh, TikTok at California Haunts, all lowercase. Check me out and check my me and California Hounds out over at Instagram, Ghosty Gal. Check that out, all lowercase. And if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We are equal opportunity here. We just want to get the word out about the show. You know, the more people that you can share it with, the more people listen, and then you start the snow, the, the snowball effect. So uh, please do that, and uh, I'd really appreciate it because I'm looking for followers and stuff. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming and spending your Sunday evening with me. I really appreciate it, and I will see you live on Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. But in the meantime, enjoy tomorrow's show. I might be on the chat. We'll see. I might be able to take a few minutes. We tend to get kids off and on, so I'm back and forth in the yard lighting things up. You know, things break. i got to fix it, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, so that's what I'll be busy doing tomorrow night, and probably most of you will be doing that too. So, uh, you know, you get to the videos whenever you can. But I appreciate each and every one of you, and I thank you for coming tonight, and I really appreciate it. Uh, that uh, thing going going along the bottom, that is because uh, California Haunts does not take any money to investigate or anything like that. So all this stuff comes out of my pocket, whether we're going to investigations and, you know, prelims and all that, and uh, buying equipment for the radio show, paying the bills for the radio show, like the internet and... Um, uh, other fees, uh, computer breaks, things like that, equipment breaks, headphones break, all comes out of my pocket. And if you could uh, find it in your heart to help me out a little bit, I'd appreciate it. Uh, you can do that at uh, at uh, paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, you can do that. Just go to Venmo and type in California Haunts. I would really appreciate it. But anyway, I hope you all have a happy and safe ho- Halloween. And I hope the rest of your evening is, is a good one. And I will see you on Tuesday live. But uh, remember, we do have a show tomorrow. All right. See ya.